Hello. Hey. I'm getting myself in character as a podcast host. Oh boy. I don't have a character. I I just bring, you know, 100% pure realness to every recording that we do. That's why we throb with authenticity on every episode. Welcome back to Check Displeased, the podcast where we're reading through the webcomic Check Please now that it's concluded to reassess how we feel about it and sometimes get even angrier. Today, we're going to be looking at comic 1.19, Playoffs Part 2, which was originally posted on July 19th, 2014. I'm Secret OMG. Who's on the horn? Hello, I'm Tomato, and uh, oh, I have so many things to say. Do I? No, but let's try to come up with something. Couple things to say about this comic. I don't know that any of them were like real crucial. I will say before you even summarize this comic that I think in and of itself, this comic is well done. It has a beginning, a middle, and a cliffhanger. And I think that's solid. I think it picks up a lot of the themes that have been coursing through this first year of the comic. Does that in and of itself justify it as part of the larger Check Please project? Keep listening. We open with Biddy in Faber in one of the back rooms, talking about how he's so nervous and mentioning that Jack wants to win so much and I'd hate to diss. And then he gets cut off as somebody probably shitty interrupts and says, there's the little fucker. Biddy, what the hell? You're going to be late to strategy. So he gets interrupted in his vlog recording. Biddy stutters. We get a shot of the ice. We get sort of a quick montage style or collage style look at three periods of the game. And then we get the coaches with lines, very exciting, telling people what to do and where to go. Zimmerman gets told to win the face off and then there's a a rallying cry of boys. Then Biddy, hovering next to Jack and looking very, very worried, gets told by Jack that he has an opportunity if he gets the puck to wheel around and send it to Jack. Biddy very nervously replies, but that's the same guy who knocked the wind out of holster second period. He's, he's huge. Jack, I don't think I should. And then the arena goes hazy and yellow. Jack puts his giant hand on Biddy's tiny shoulder and says, Biddle, I've got your back. Secret will have to do this for us in uh, the appropriate accent later. And then Biddy says, oh, okay. Then we get an image of Jack in the foreground and Biddy in the background. Biddy kind of like nervously shaking. And then our final vision is of Biddy's very, very nervous face waiting for play to begin. Biddy starts off by saying that he shouldn't be vlogging so close to the game, but y'all, I'm just so damn nervous. I feel like this is the closest we get, at least up to this point, to Biddy and or the comic acknowledging that the vlog serves a purpose for Viddy. It's like a support system or an outlet for him. And I don't know that I have that much more to say about this right this second, but this isn't usually how he uses his vlog, I don't think. He's expounded on his own feelings, but the fact that he's confessing that he's nervous 
in the moment rather than scripting something after it happened and sort of delivering it performatively. I think that's maybe a glimpse into Biddy's motivations for keeping this vlog in the first place. Of course, it's never really drilled down to in depth. The blog is not really a plot point. Nothing ever happens because Biddy has a vlog. I just thought it was interesting. It was a nice touch. Yeah, I hadn't noticed that until you pointed it out or I hadn't really thought about the in-universe reason for Biddy's vlog, but I think that that's really nice. And in keeping with a lot of the vlogs I have watched, you know, back in the day when I watched vlogs, again, it would be really interesting to see Biddy's relationship with his own audience. That's not something we ever really dive into in great depth, but at least a little touch of it is pretty interesting to see. I also think it's interesting that he talks here about Jack and suggests that he doesn't want to disappoint Jack when, of course, we've seen this developing, I guess, relationship between them over the past several strips. So I had a question for you. How do you read this moment? How, for you, does this show their development in their relationship? So the thing that stuck out to me about it personally was that it seems odd that to Biddy, winning in the game is a matter of disappointing Jack or not. The whole team wants to win. And in fact, Biddy is a member of the team and presumably he should want to win as well. So the fact that he wants to win because Jack will be disappointed if they don't win just seems weird. And now obviously we're supposed to interpret it as they've become friends. Biddy really likes and respects Jack a lot. He understands Jack's vulnerabilities because he barged in on that phone call in Samwell versus Yale part one. And also, as we'll start to put together over the next several strips, and even a bit in this strip, Biddy is kind of getting a crush on Jack. So in that way, this comment hints at those developments. But it's also just interesting because it's like, Biddy, you're on the fucking hockey team. Like, don't you want to win? Don't you really want to win? Like, why are you putting yourself through all of this if you yourself are not the person that you're playing for? I don't think it's much of a spoiler to say that what happens at the end of this game in the next strip is that he gets really injured. So he's risking quite a lot if he's not playing for himself or even playing for the team, but only playing for for Jack. I keep going back and forth on whether I find this development successful or not. On the one hand, yes, there have been developments in the sense that we see anger at Jack switch towards friendship, switch towards worry, switch towards fearing disappointing him, switch towards trust in this strip. We do see Biddy beginning to put his faith in Jack in a way that leads to him getting seriously injured. I don't know that I find it convincing development or like enough development. I mean, the thing is that crushes, I guess, just kind of develop as they develop. It's possible that crushes just develop out of nowhere and all of a sudden Biddy's feelings towards Jack could kind of come out of nowhere. On the other hand, I don't know whether I actually find it convincing. And then I kind of end up going in circles with myself, trying to figure out whether or not I'm into it or whether or not I find it effective as characterization. The nicest and most cordial we have seen Jack be to Biddy up until this point in the comic is telling Biddy that Ransom and Holster 
are wrong. Sometimes he does drink, just not at parties. Going on in the background of all of this is that Jack has been giving Biddy checking lessons. So I guess we're just meant to presume that because they've been doing these checking lessons together, Jack has been giving something of himself and making an investment in Biddy, and that's been translated into success in practice where they've been playing really well together and now they're on the same line together and their bond is going to be tested by their ability to work out the play that Jack proposes at the end of this strip. Which I should note is successful. Like it ends up working, it just really gets Biddy injured. So I guess they've come to some sort of understanding. They could have taken a lot more time over the course of the past 19 strips to have moments outside of hockey where these guys get along and they just haven't happened. And I will say that I think it's completely normal if you have a crush on somebody to, you know, want to win a hockey game because you know that your crush wants to win the hockey game. But the statement, Jack wants to win so much, is kind of stupid because don't they all want to win so much? Why does Jack's wanting to win stand out as most important? In some ways, it's just sort of a narrative flaw of check please that it keeps placing so much emphasis on, like, Jack's personal journey, Jack's desires, Jack's redemption, Jack's fulfillment of his potential, etc. But if you want to read it charitably, it's also being broadly hinted that the reason why Jack wanting to win so much is the thing that's foregrounded for Biddy is because Biddy's ultimately now most concerned with Jack. More so than himself, more so than the team as a whole. That kind of puts for me into perspective a little bit of what we've discussed before, thinking about how Biddy is a character who things kind of just happen to. And if we look at character arcs, Jack's character arc from the beginning to the end of the comic is very dynamic. Lots of things change in his life. Biddy's character arc is somewhat dynamic. Things do happen, but it's much less dynamic than Jack's. Yet we get no sense of Jack's interiority and a fair sense of Biddy's interiority with certain things just never kind of being accessible. That's frustrating sometimes as a reader. I don't know what to make of it in this moment other than this is about to be something that happens to Biddy that he doesn't have that much choice over other than to trust Jack. But also, what choice does he really have? Jack is his captain and a person he has a crush on or will soon have a crush on if he doesn't already. So what choice does he really have but to go along with this plan, which is potentially dangerous to him and which he doesn't kind of feel safe in? So I guess that's interesting when thinking about Biddy's agency as a character. Do you find the progression satisfying? Even if you can map it through these presumed background interactions that have been happening that we don't see in the strips. Do you believe in this relationship as a reader? That is difficult and complicated for me to answer because, again, I came into this comic because I saw that these two characters had become a canon couple. So I have never in my life been able to read this strip or their story without the understanding that their relationship was preordained by the creator and therefore inherent in 
everything I was consuming. When I think about this logically, like I want to imagine that if you just gave me this, you know, raw and said, here's a first draft of a graphic novel, what needs to be changed? My guess is what I would say would be like, you know, you need to do a better job building out the relationship between these two characters before they get together. I don't believe that they are soulmates. I also don't really believe that they actually know each other that well. Like, we have seen no scenes up to this point of Jack and Biddy spending time together one-on-one. I think we have seen very few scenes of them getting together or even really interacting outside of hockey. And all of the interactions that they have had are like very cursory and superficial. So, well, actually, I guess they've they've had a few scenes together one-on-one. There was checking practice and then there was them talking outside of the loading dock and then there was, you know, it was a lucky shot. So I guess that's not necessarily true. But something about it just seems not really there. I keep being told that they're going to get together and that this is the relationship I need to be rooting for. So I guess I understand that they're going to get together and that's the relationship that I would root for. But again, as an editor, if I were looking at this and thinking, what's missing? What do I need to see to believe this? It would be more of their relationship developing. Again, you know, Jack says, I've got your back. Earlier in the comic, he says to trust him. Why? You know, that's the question. What has Jack done to demonstrate to Biddy up to this point that Biddy can trust that Jack has his back. He doesn't really have a choice. Like, this is the hockey play. He's a hockey player on a hockey team. You know, you're right to point out that he just has to do what he's told by his coaches and or his captain and or what makes sense within the context of the game. To me, the idea of is this progress satisfying is just like so completely irrelevant to this comic at this point. On one hand, I know how it ends. And I also know that I came into it as a reader with a certain amount of context that meant that the way that I engage with the text was already set from the beginning of my engagement. What is satisfying to me? I mean, you know, like an 18-year-old guy and a 23-year-old guy falling in love and getting married is not satisfying progress to me, no matter who is doing it. So like, I think a better question would be, are we, is the way that this progress is being communicated to the reader effective and believable? Is there weight to it? Does it feel like there's substance there? I think, you know, what satisfies me is sort of a different category from what I think we're talking about in regard to the progression of this relationship right now. Gotcha. That does make sense. I think when I think of the word satisfying, I'm often thinking about the idea of substance, but you're right. They are kind of two different ideas. I guess the reason I keep returning to this question is because I'm having some weird cognitive dissonance in that the first time I read this comic, I remember being satisfied by this. And we can talk a little bit about that as we continue to talk about other panels in this comic, including a panel that really made the rounds at the the time. But I remember being thrilled at 
every new intimacy that I felt was being explored between Jack and Biddy, of which this panel is one. And upon rereading it, not feeling that satisfaction, and in fact, often feeling sort of irritated, like there isn't any substance. And so that's why I keep returning to that question, but maybe that's really a question I should be asking myself instead of constantly asking you. I'm not that satisfied. I feel like it's pointing to things that could have been thoughtfully written but weren't, and therefore I'm sort of left wanting. I'm intrigued by your use of the phrase satisfied by new intimacies. To me, that brings up the way I feel reading like certain fanfics that are being composed in the vernacular of slashfic. And I have not necessarily felt this way about a slashfic for certainly not five years and maybe as many as seven or eight years. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a time when you'd click on or I'd click on a slash story and the pairing would be marked. So I'd understand that the story was about these two characters ultimately getting together, but it was a story that was being told over like 100,000 words or 200,000 words. And I was so impatient to see the actual relationship develop that just one scene in one chapter where one character put his hand on another character's shoulder or their glances lingered for a little bit would be very excited and I would get a little moment of excitement or a moment of satisfaction like, oh, it's coming or whatever. I used to feel this way a lot about, about fix, where these little intimate glances or touches or minute contained interactions between two characters would be like very exciting to me. Another case where this would be satisfying would be if I was reading a story about another pairing that I didn't really care as much about, but my pairing that I was interested in was like a secondary pairing. And anytime that I could see a little bit of intimacy between the two characters that I actually cared about in this story that was about like somebody else entirely, that was very exciting and very satisfying for me. So if you think about Check Please as basically a slash fic, not really fanfic, if you think about it as like a slash story that's just being told in like a comics medium, yeah, I could see a moment like the moment that happens between them here where Jack says he's got Biddy's back. I could see that being very satisfying if you're just like, oh god, when are they going to get together? And you can sort of sense that that's what Ngozi is trying to do because she, like the writer of a fanfic, keeps in the paratext giving, you know, when are Jack and Biddy going to blah 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 to try to ramp people up to expect it. You know, almost as if the fic was marked Jack slash Biddy. I can see how if you were approaching the story from certain angles, the progression would be satisfying or the moments between these two characters that you were getting would feel very satisfying. But I think as the comic goes on, it starts to skid off the rails from basically being slash fic told in comics and it starts becoming something else, something much weirder, something at various points somewhat more complicated, both good and bad. And I think by the time I came to the comic, it had already kind of made that departure 
So I never enjoyed it on this like pure level that reminded me of what I liked about slash fic when slash fic was new for me and novel. That is definitely the feeling that I remember having. And around this time in the comic was when I started getting into it in a way that I talked to friends about it. I mean, I had been introduced to the comic by a friend. Around this time was the time that I remember the fandom beginning in earnest. And I mean, I don't remember the fanfic, but I mean, a sort of community of people who would buzz to each other about each update and definitely felt very similar to how I have felt when, for example, a long serialized fanfic gets updated. And I talked about it with friends. I think that's a really, really apt comparison. And yeah, that is kind of the way that I feel. But you know, I I also haven't felt that way in a long time. And I wonder whether I have the capacity as a reader to feel that way anymore. Like I maybe am too kind of old and wizened now to get that kind of pure delight at two characters slowly growing together. I'm not sure. Or maybe I've just grown jaded by the Check Please fandom and not having that experience in the fanfic because the comic was taking care of it. I'm not really sure. Something I think that was interesting that you pointed out in terms of the vlog as well and kind of the relationship between comic and audience is that by saying that he's talking to some friends, Biddy here kind of turns the audience into his friends. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not the natural response. To me, the natural response to the question, what are you even doing? is not, I was just talking to some friends. It's, oh, I was vlogging. Or if I don't want to say I was vlogging, it's, oh, nothing. There's nobody else in, I think it's a laundry room. I feel like the thing uh, to his right is probably a washing machine or something, and there's a sack of towels there. So there's nobody else in there. So he obviously wasn't talking to some friends. He was vlogging. So I feel like we're already in this weird territory where he's saying something sort of artificial seeming or constructed seeming to make some kind of a point. And it's interesting. If you want to read it literally, the idea that he considers his vlog audience his friends does kind of snap artfully into the idea that he is nervous and he is in real time seeking solace from the vlog audience that he's cultivated and that he trusts. Of course, that also raises questions about his earlier statements about the hockey team being his best friends. Like, if you're nervous about the hockey game, why not talk to your best friends on the hockey team about it? Aren't they probably in a better place to reassure you? But leaving that aside, just because how many things are we supposed to be expected to deal with in one comic strip, I feel like the way that that statement I was just talking to some friends, floats over two panels and isolates the talking to some friends, does sort of like point to it as something that you maybe want to take note of. Positionally, Biddy is not sitting in front of a camera doing vlogging. He's sitting in front of you, the reader of Check, Please. So yeah, the person he's talking to is you. He's talking to his readership. He's talking to the audience. 
Every time he records a vlog, he is effectively talking to the readership of Check, Please, perhaps more and definitely as much as he's talking to the imaginary vlog audience that doesn't actually exist. The thing I think is interesting about this is that at the time when this comic strip is posted, he's been twittering. Well, I guess the word is tweeting. Whatever, I don't care. He's been tweeting for about a month. So the idea that he has this audience of readers who are following him on social media, be it Twitter or YouTube, that's very much a real thing now. Like, it's actual. And probably most of the people who are reading this comic, seeing this panel, talking to some friends, are in fact also now his friends on Twitter. This has at this point, officially turned into multi-platform storytelling, where the success of the story for at least the next, you know, year and a couple of comics is going to hinge on his ability to, or Ngozi's ability to, maintain an audience on Twitter as well, made up of friends who are consuming the canon in both places. So it's an interesting twist, and I, I do kind of wonder if it's deliberate, because it's such a bizarre thing to say based on the context of where he's starting this strip, and it's pulled out. It's literally pulled out. It's dragged onto a third panel where it sort of floats as a, as a text box in the top left corner of the scene. So I, I suspect this is in fact deliberate. Further interesting because there's so much chatter now, meaning in 2020, when we're recording the podcast, that one of the major problems that ended up setting on Check, Please, ultimately is that Ngozi and her readership began to form a parasocial relationship that both sides to a certain extent misinterpreted as friendship. And that was some of what ended up taking this comic and making the fandom so toxic, etc. Can you briefly define what a parasocial relationship is for people who might not be following such conversations online? Yeah, so you'll notice that there's a similarity to the word paratext. A parasocial relationship is basically like a one-sided relationship. So a parasocial friendship is, is, strictly speaking, one in which, you know, you think somebody is your friend, but they don't necessarily think of you as a friend. And the reason why this critique is sometimes made of Ngozi and her fan base is because, you know, she hosts live streams and she, I think back in the day before the comic readership really exploded, used to actually DM and chat with and spend a lot more time talking to her readership. I have met her at cons. This was now like a few years ago. So I, you know, obviously in 2020, nobody's doing anything like this. She's very accessible and very easy to, if she comes to your town, go over to her booth at whatever convention she's selling at and she probably literally is the person standing at the booth and if you wander over there and talk to her she'll have a conversation with you and if you buy a book from her she'll sign it and draw you a character of your choice in the book and while she's drawing that character which will probably take anywhere from like a couple to you know 10 minutes depending on how much money you spend have a conversation with you 
And when you are used to a model of creator to fan, where the creator is this like, the powers that be, distant, impenetrable, unknowable entity, you know, a sort of J.R.R. Tolkien type, this kind of wise old man's looking down on fondly his readership, I guess at this point, you know, from heaven. The idea that this woman is like a flesh and blood person who will have a conversation with you like you're somebody she knows can kind of come across as friendship. And it is certainly very friendly, but it's also kind of like a marketing thing because you're not, you know, you're not going to want to unsubscribe from the Patreon of a woman who you've like met in real life, who's spoken to you directly and looked you in the eyes before. That's much harder than to just be like, fuck it, I hate this comic. I'm taking my $5 away from somebody who's a complete abstraction. Just like somebody who, you know, lives in LA and their entire existence seems unknowable and, and beyond your framework. I would also make the point that, you know, the way in which paratexts have a convoluted relationship to the text, they support the text, but the text would exist without the, the paratext. That's the connection here. So the creator is the text, the fans are the paratext in this parallel. Do you think that was like too crazy or a good description? I think that was a good description. This has been in the media of late, I would say maybe the past year or so, probably longer, but that's as long as I've been aware of it. As people begin to critique the nature of relationships between say YouTube stars and their fans or on a smaller scale, really, really popular Tumblr bloggers and their fans, you know, people who are not protected by the machine of Hollywood or something, but whose livelihoods come from a complicated relationship with people who give them attention and money, but because they are relatively accessible compared to, you know, your Hollywood stars or whatever. And by the way, people can feel like they have parasocial relationships with Hollywood stars as well. It's just different because the the machine is different. Um, but I've been seeing critiques about entitlement, the way fans seem to expect things from the people they appreciate, the way that money and attention don't actually mean friendship, but people behave as though it does. And I think Check Please absolutely falls into this category, especially because as you noted in the beginning days, you know, you could DM Ngozi, you could interact with Biddy on Twitter. I did it in my brief glorious time of having a Twitter. Like, this is a thing that was very possible and very easy to do. So it felt very much like, uh, you know, Ngozi was one of us. And in many ways, she was. And then as that shifted, and it became clear that it had not, in fact, been actual friendship. It had, in fact, been a different kind of relationship. You know, I think that was really complicated for everyone on both sides to navigate. Well, there's a lot that's interesting here. I think one thing that makes it complex and perhaps difficult to pull apart if you're just like in the fandom at this time is that some of the people who you're seeing in the Chef Please fandom are in fact her friends. Like a lot of the people who wrote the early Chef Please stuff 
and did, you know, early fan art for Check, Please. And I'm thinking of 20-something, whoever the hell that is, you know, the fanfic writer who wrote a couple of the first prominent Check, Please fanfics. But also, like, Gail Galligan, who was a student at SCAD with Ngozi, and they continue to be close friends. The people who are sort of, like, starting to produce fan works for this comic and having exchanges with Ngozi visible online are her friends. So if you're just coming in as somebody who's read this comic and you're interested in possibly becoming part of a fandom with it, you might see these relationships and misinterpret them as being the kind of relationship that you could have with Ngozi. And I think the development of a parasocial relationship 100% helped build the popularity of this comic. You want to know what's so interesting? You mentioned, you know, discussions about entitlement and so on. You know, that's actually a critique that I have seen Ngozi make. And I think a lot of people listening to this has probably seen her make the comment that her fans can often be very entitled, thinking that they you know, can, can send her certain messages or make certain demands. And I think we should probably sideline most of that specific conversation to, I don't know, a special episode or something else. I find it very interesting. It's like really sort of nitpicky to kind of go through like, you know, when is this okay, but when is this not okay? Having said that, I think it's absolutely the case that the parasocial relationship between Ngozi and her audience turned into some of the toxic, entitled, what is okay and what is not okay, that a lot of fandoms and like YouTube stars seem to have. I follow like, not follow in that I've like clicked the subscribe button, but you know, I watch YouTube videos for all kinds of people. And yeah, I mean, they, they certainly are using parasocial relationships to market themselves. You know, the, the idea of come to a chat with me and if you put a certain amount of money in my tip jar or whatever, I will answer your question or give you a shout out is like very popular among YouTubers. Or they'll do like a live stream where they, you know, they'll, they'll spend like a month making like, you know, a 40 minute or a 60 minute video essay. And then for their patrons, they'll have, you know, an exit interview about the video where they talk to their patrons in a live stream about, you know, well, when I made this, I was thinking whatever. I've also seen critiques of things like travel bloggers where people are like, well, when I first started watching them two years ago, they felt very relatable and I felt like I really knew them and I, you know, sort of knew what their process was and that was part of the appeal to me. But now they're too famous or they're too wealthy or they're too successful and I don't really connect to that anymore. And then you start to get these problems where people who do still connect to that are like, well, how dare you criticize these people? Because they feel defensive, because there is this sympathy that you would have as if for a friend. You know, I feel like it's interesting to think about all of the missed opportunities in this comic of what could have been done in terms of Biddy and his vlogging career 
But I don't know, either that would have been getting too close to home, or it just wasn't what the comic was interested in. But here we get some hints that the relationship between Biddy and the reader, and the reader and the author, and the author and her subject, and her subject and his in-text audience, is just completely blurred. Yes, and we'll continue to see that blurring literally through the very last comic. I don't want to go too deeply into Ngozi and her fan base either. I will just briefly point out that in these early days, part of the reason that the fandom felt very friendly and accessible, including access to the author, was because, as you said, of course, Ngozi's actual friends making fan works, but Ngozi herself kind of playing around with the boundaries of what was appropriate. I'm thinking here of like the first huddle. I don't have my first huddle with me. It's in a box of books where I don't live. You know, there are sort of non-canonical quote unquote pairings and art explored in that little sketchbook in a way that felt very conspiratorial, in a way that felt like Ngozi was in on her own fandom. And that was absolutely part of what built that parasocial relationship and part of what made Check Please so popular, I think. And part of what led to the kind of deeply personal attachment to Check Please that eventually led to defensiveness against critique and so on and so forth. The same way you might feel for a creation by a a close friend if you don't live in a world where your close friend loves constructive criticism or something, right? Or unconstructive criticism, criticism of any kind, I guess. So it's kind of interesting to map how the characters do relate in strange ways to the author, even as we have discussed before, we attempt to not overreach or overread into that relationship. I think it's undeniable in many ways. I don't think Biddy's relationship to his audience ever gets like fully developed to the point where it's a coherent or a fully cognate aspect of the comic. I think it's something that crests through the rest of the noise on a few occasions. You also mentioned that if he gets interrupted here and doesn't finish recording, are we meant to read this as part of a finished video? And I had this question, actually, I remember the first time I read the strip and I never actually knew, and I honestly don't think it matters. Like, I think that it's clear that this moment is for the readers to understand some part of Biddy's interiority. And I think you could read it either way and In either case, it truly doesn't really matter. I mean, I don't think it matters in terms of, like, the plot. I just think it's interesting to raise because it, again, sort of fractures the mechanism of the vlog. You know, up until this point, we've been presented with vlogging as a kind of performance done by the narrator to construct his time at college for an audience. And here we have a moment that breaks the facade of that performance. That's all. Yeah. So then we kind of move on and hockey comes back. We again see actual hockey play on the ice. Although as with the previous strip that we discussed, not actually an entire game, but it's still pretty effective. Like we see that it's an aggressive game with lots of physical play. And we actually see Jack and Biddy on the ice together for, I think, the first time in a game 
certainly the first time we see them kind of in the same shot involved in the same action. So we actually get to see, we get a little hint of their relationship on the ice together. Kitty at one point alludes to a guy who knocked the wind out of holster in second period. But then the image of a uh, second period that's presented on the page that has the sort of period by period montage is, is of ransom. That's neither here nor there, but I noticed it. I guess if we are to assume that ransom got beat up, so did holster. Maybe, I, I don't know. Then we get to this moment, this really important moment where Jack asks Betty to ignore his own sense of safety and his own sense of skill to, you know, steal the puck and make sure Jack has access to it so that he can put it in the net. And I don't know, I thought this moment was really interesting, mostly because, as I said before, between this panel and the next where everything gets really hazy and golden, I remember this being the moment where I started to believe maybe these characters were actually going to get together. Obviously, it had been hinted the whole time, but as mentioned before, like I was an idiot slash am an idiot, so I just had a hard time believing it was really going to happen. But because of this telegraphing, I started thinking, oh boy, you know, maybe she's really going to go through with it. And what is obviously in retrospect, yes, the whole point of the fucking comic, but like whatever. I don't know. There's something about Jack saying, trust me here, having not really built up the reader's trust, particularly, except through these tropey moments except through the sense that we should trust him because he's the romantic lead as opposed to any action he's taken that has proven himself trustworthy that I kind of keep chewing over because I remember finding it incredible the first time around I remember finding it gratifying and affirming and part of the relationship in a really satisfying way and by satisfying I mean substantive like, I felt that this really added something to their relationship the first time around. And now I'm not sure that I believe that narratively, even though I still see what it's doing in terms of its conversation with the tropes of romance, you know? Number one, Jack speaks in platitudes. We've talked about this before. We talked about it the first time he told Biddy to trust him. He, his language is a language of, like, sports metaphors and things that you'd expect a, a sports guy would say. He doesn't really have his own language. So I believe this is the only way that he can communicate. At the same time, nothing he's saying is specific to Biddy. I absolutely believe that Jack would have the same conversation, the same interactions with every player on his line. He just needs to accomplish this shot. The way that they're framed in that yellow panel is obviously trying to communicate that they have a connection. They're looking into each other's eyes. Biddy is staring up at him like he is the fucking sun. Jack seems a little bit less besotted. At the same time, this whole interaction is really weird and like rubs me in several wrong ways. I feel like in some senses, they're both sort of fucking up here. Jack is telling Biddy he's got Biddy's back. And as we're about to see in the next comic, that's completely meaningless. Like what is it that Jack is going to do for Biddy if he gets checked by a giant hockey player? Like, what is it? He's going to score a goal and Biddy is concussed so he doesn't get to enjoy it? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, what, what is he going to do? Is he going to fight? I mean, I guess we, we see that he does, but like, what is that going to do for Biddy? 
Like unless Biggie's bought into the culture of hockey and believed that somebody fighting for him means that he's part of the team, that's sort of a, a meaningless, empty, violent gesture. It's not really followed up on very much. Biddy expressing hesitation in these two panels and then, you know, accepting Jack's, I don't want to say the word commands, you know, doing what Jack says, ultimately saying, okay, agreeing, is frustrating because on the one hand, Biddy's premonitions are absolutely correct. He is about to get checked by that giant guy and he's going to get really injured so he's not wrong. He has a pretty good, pretty acts, you know, a pretty accurate sense for how this is gonna go. At the same time, his little his little bit of dialogue here where he says, I don't think I should. It's like, well, but you're on a fucking hockey team. Like you're on a fucking hockey team. This is what you've signed up to do. You are being through the payment of your college tuition remunerated for being on the hockey team. Like what you're here to do is like do literally whatever you have to do to win the hockey game. So the fact that Biddy is telling Jack that he doesn't think he could or should do something is evidence at the same time of a few different things. One is that Biddy has like the proprioception or like the foresight to sort of know that this is gonna go bad for him. He can read a situation. Number two, he feels confident enough in his relationship with Jack that he feels like he can tell Jack that he's afraid of something and that he doesn't necessarily want to do it. And I feel like he probably wouldn't have said that to Jack earlier in the year. Although we never see him on the ice like this before. Number three, I keep asking, why is Biddy on this hockey team? Like, you're in basically the semi-finals or the whatever the fucking sequifinals. I don't know what the right word is. Point is, like, you're, you're relatively close to making it to the semi-finals in these playoffs. So if you're not ready to just fucking commit to, like, do whatever you have to do, to win the hockey game. Why are you on the team? If you're so afraid of checking, like, don't be on the hockey team. I know this is like, I'm beating a drum that I've been beating like this whole podcast. And it's like, I understand completely against like the point of the comic. Yeah, there's gonna be huge guys who knock the wind out of your biggest players on every single hockey team. That's what the fucking sport is. Don't tell Jack, I don't think I should. Either you're here or don't play. That's it, rant over. There are things later in the comic, particularly coming out to their friends, where Biddy is like, I don't want to, and Jack is like, but you have to, and then they do it. And obviously it goes fine for Biddy in that instance, but I feel like the ethos of the comic is constantly pushing down on the idea that it doesn't matter how painful something is, it doesn't matter how difficult something is, it doesn't matter what kind of harm you may actually be risking, you just have to push yourself to do it as a matter of integrity and character growth. So I don't know, are we supposed to read the fact that he does this and then he ends up with pretty bad concussion? Is that supposed to be character growth for him? The fact that he's willing to like get injured? At the same time, if this is an actual issue for Biddy, he doesn't want to end up like landing on his head after being checked into the air during a hockey game. He should not be playing hockey.
what's he supposed to say to Jack here? It's like he's basically already tacitly accepted that he's going to do whatever Jack tells him to at this point, as you noted. Now I'm just rambling. I've been entertained. I mean, the point at which you're standing on the ice with your captain and you're about to go, like, line up to literally do the play is not the time to be like, I don't know if I should. Like, if you're going to get to that point, just, you know, already have not been on the team at this point. Don't get yourself into this situation. I think this is where, if we were to go back and rewrite this, you know, work of genius, though it may be, this is where seeing more of those checking clinics or more of their time in the ice together would have been helpful. Because if we had seen Jack and Biddy overcome this fear in the past, it would be both more poignant and more painful when Biddy finally puts his trust in Jack, Jack's hands. Say that in a previous practice, Biddy had said, I don't know if I should. And Jack had said, trust me. And Biddy had been okay. And Biddy slowly learned to trust this dude. And then in the moment where it really counts, Biddy gets injured. That would both be more dramatic, I think more poignant, and also be making kind of an interesting point about hockey, or at least a more interesting point about hockey than what's made here, which is like, I don't know, hockey's dangerous and you should get concussions so you can win. There's a way that this could have been handled that would have made this moment as impactful as I think it's aiming to be. But what has ended up happening is that this moment kind of borrows the trappings of poignancy without quite getting there. And so you end up with, this is where that paratext idea comes so important in the sense of tropes as a, I know I'm repeating myself, it's because I am like newly fascinated with this idea of tropes that has come up for me as I've started discussing this comic and this podcast, so forgive me. But I think that what's so interesting about this moment is that it only really, really, really works. It only has all of its impact when it's in conversation with romance fic slash fic, etc. When it stands on its own, it loses a lot of that impact because it's doesn't it's not borrowing from the other times we've seen these moments. The other times that I have seen, you know, two two boys standing in front of each other asking each other to take a check for them or whatever. I think that this moment is indicative of not only a power dynamic that I find continuously frustrating throughout the rest of the comic, and that kind of feeds into some of the discussions we had on our fanfic episode about preferred dynamics between these characters and so on, but also speaks to the way that their relationship will continue to push on each character's boundaries in ways that I find really interesting narratively, but really troubling in terms of, you know, relationship quote unquote health. Sorry, there's a fox that has been digging up my vegetables or what would be my vegetables if the fox wasn't digging them up. Yeah, I agree. I think you are correct about a scene where Jack tells Biddy to trust him and then it works out. If Biddy had a reason to think narratively or textually that when Jack says to trust him, Biddy should, I would swallow this a lot more easily. But it's also just interesting to me in terms of like the power dynamics of their relationship because... You know, not to get too into this, but especially on places like Sale Fandom Anon, I've had conversations with people where I've basically said, well, what choice does Biddy have? And people have said, he's an adult man, so anything he does is his choice. And it's like, no, there's all of these other social factors and systemic factors that are keeping him from full freedom to make literally any choice. 
I mean, he basically has to do this at this point. It's like, what's he going to do in the middle of this fucking game? Just say, like, actually, you know what? I don't think I can do this. I'm off the hockey team. Goodbye. And, like, get off the ice and just go. They've got other players, so... It's not like they're not going to be able to finish the hockey game. But for various reasons, he obviously cannot do that. To a certain extent, Biddy's hands are tied in a lot of ways. And I think the way in which Jack compels him to participate in his play here is interesting because it's emblematic of their larger relationship where Jack has all the control in a lot of senses. And to a certain extent... Biddy's autonomy, even if technically intact, is sort of beside the point because he obviously doesn't have a lot of other options. Or even if those options exist in text, they don't necessarily exist in deed. For example, if Biddy ends up in a relationship with Jack, you know, that he got into when he was 20 years old, and he's never lived any kind of an adult life without Jack Zimmerman, and his entire financial fortune has always been dependent upon being married to Jack Zimmerman, who is independently wealthy, and he's never had any kind of residence without Jack Zimmerman. You know, I guess he's choosing to be in the relationship, yes, but it's also like, what else is he gonna fucking do? He doesn't even have a clear vision of what his life looks like otherwise, so how can he even begin to opt out of what he's already into? I know this is something that's, like, controversial, And I don't mean to like really dig into this because we're obviously still a year from them getting into a relationship within the comic. But it's interesting to me that we've basically got this narrative set up where Jack is pretty much compelling him to do what Jack thinks they should do. And Biddy is just like, okay, because what else is he going to do? Say, no, I'm really scared. I can't do this play. You've got to put somebody else in. Yes. I have long been fascinated by this part of their relationship and talking about it I mean, let's not dive into it, as you said, too deeply, but I'm routinely fascinated by it in part because it has so rarely been part of the conversation around this comic. It's like not really been a critique that anyone has discussed about this comic that I saw. When in other fandoms over the past few years, age differences have become hugely contentious, including age differences of five years or something, like a pretty small age difference compared to some age differences out there. So I'm really interested in this power dynamic because there's an age difference, but also because of their differing social capital, as we've discussed throughout the whole comic, including, you know, how straight passing they are, basically, and other parts of their power dynamic, including Jack's captaincy, Biddy's, you know, rising through the ranks as a result of Jack's mentorship, basically, and getting all the way up to first line as a result of that mentorship. I mean, there's lots going on here that feeds into the romantic conversation, but because it is not wrapped up in that romantic conversation in a very effective way, it just becomes kind of strange fodder. And then you get to a moment like this where, as you very rightly mentioned, like if Biddy can't take a check, he probably should be thinking about whether or not to be on the team anyway. Like this is what sports are. If you want to do it, you've got to be ready to do it. But at the same time, if we kind of remove hockey from the equation, which this comic seems very willing to do at almost every occasion, 
in terms of actual logistics. But when you look at the emotional thing that's happening here, it's Biddy saying, I don't feel safe. And Jack saying, we'll do it anyway. And then Biddy getting injured. And so there's just something about that dynamic, which is obviously fascinating to me and a dynamic that I continuously want to explore, but that is at odds with the way the fandom was discussing the relationship, certainly at this time. I mean, this is not how I read this the first time around. And it's not how the fandom discussed it the first time around, because what context did we have? I mean, there were lots of reasons, but but when I go back and look at it, it's unavoidable. Well, the time when these remarkable panels of Jack and Biddy's nascent connection are being published as part of this particular strip, Chef Please is basically a work of futurity where it is all potential and that potential is entirely unwritten. It's left for every reader to fill in what kind of future relationship for Jack and Biddy makes sense to them. So you're not necessarily thinking, even if you accept at this point that like Jack and Biddy will get together, that they're going to get together the way in which they get together in the comic. You don't know if Biddy is going to end up dating somebody else. You don't know if Jack is going to end up in the NHL. You don't know if they're going to end up having to keep their relationship secret. You don't know what's going to happen, basically. It's really difficult to read these scenes now and not think about what ends up happening in the comic. But if I'm seeing the scene in July 2014 and I have a good idea that Jack and Biddy are going to get together, but I have no idea how and in what way and at what point during the comic, I can just sort of slot it into whatever my projected preference for their future relationship is. Exactly. And that was really intoxicating. Again, we're going to read the next strip where Biddy actually does get injured. And then we're going to read a strip even after that where he talks about the fact that he got injured. So we're going to have plenty of, of time to investigate this. But the way it's being set up here is Biddy questioning whether or not he should do this. And I think that's interesting because my recollection is that on the other side of this hit, he doesn't question whether or not he should have done it. It doesn't cause him to reassess anything. If anything, he doubles down harder after a little while. Yeah, and there's sort of, don't forget, there's sort of two viewpoints here. There's Biddy's viewpoint, what he is saying to other characters and also to his audience slash you, the reader. But then there's also the viewpoint that the text as a whole is presenting. And I would argue that it can be perfectly possible for Biddy and the text itself to have divergent opinions about what happened, or for Biddy to not want to reassess or question what happened and the narrative to subtly communicate that maybe he ought to but I don't know that that's what happens. I want to keep thinking about the difference between what Biddy says and the view that the text takes, especially as we go through year two, because that was one of the things that I remember really loving. But as we keep going, we get to this portrait of Biddy waiting nervously for the play to start, and then we get this 
eyes wide open a portrait of him just like shaking out of his skates. And I just want to point out, I love this panel, this very last panel. As you pointed out at the beginning, it is a cliffhanger and it's a really effective one. And it's also artistically really beautiful. I mean, just the way that the plastic face protector on his helmet is drawn. It's cartoony, but also drawn in a kind of lovely way. I think his, his face is really evocative. I don't know, it feels really complicated to me. He looks both nervous and scared and unhappy. I mean, it's like multiple kind of negative emotions on his face, I feel. I don't know, I'm just into it. I think it's a good panel. I don't think it's that complicated, but I think it's really beautifully drawn for my personal taste. Can you tell what is reflected in his face mask? I feel like maybe it's the puck, but it's a little too transparent for me to actually say that with certainty. I'm not completely sure. I've never read it as the puck. I've read it as the bodies in front of him, maybe the shine off their helmets or something, but I'm not sure. I think you could read it as the puck, yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I can just tell that there's something being implied in the reflection of his face mask, but it's not totally clear to me exactly what it is. I do like these last two panels. I think they're well drawn. I like that we get, you know, a full body shot of Biddy framed around the sort of hockey tableau. I like that we get Jack's big old butt just sort of sticking up there. And I also like how he is staring in that second to last panel, kind of like out at the viewer almost, like, help me. I also like the last panel. I like that it's a cliffhanger. I think, you know, in and of itself, this is a strip, like I said at the beginning of this episode, that really, as a self-contained little episode, works very well. The implications for, like, the broader check, please, is always, you know, a kind of secondary thing that I am constantly thinking about. But as a strip, you know, we get the conflict. Biddy's afraid to play. Jack says, let's do this. Biddy says, I don't want to. Jack says don't worry, it's going to be fine. And then we leave off on that moment of, is it going to be fine? I think, you know, as a, as a single comic strip, this works really well. Yes. I think it's because, unlike maybe some other single strips that have been also about a short moment or been showing something about the characters, this strip has a sense of movement to it. There's a sense of transformation and then also a sense of hesitancy and uncertainty about what the outcome will be. So even though it's also about a very brief period of time and it's sort of cinematic in the way that it uses imagery and stills and so on, it uses it really effectively because it communicates a change and an emotion rather than sort of like a still portrait. Of, of, this, of a moment. And I think that's what feels really effective about it to me. There's a, a feeling of shift in some way. Then I also wanted to bring up very briefly in the blog post that there is this kind of funny little send up of the yellow panel where Biddy and Jack in sketch form are looking at each other, Jack looking much more uh, affectionate in the sketch than he does in the actual panel. And he says, Biddle, in case we don't make it, there's something I have to do. And Biddy says, Captain. And then Jack and Biddy bring their heads together and their their faces bonk together, blocked by their protective gear, blocked by their helmets. 
And then further on, uh, the, there's another little panel where Murray or someone says, boys, we're in the middle of a game. And Biddy and Jack apologize. And then Johnson says, it's like their helmets are a metaphor, lol. And I only bring this up because this is both silly and something I enjoyed at the time. This is this is where I was like, oh my God, Biddy and Jack are going to get together. My God, what, a, what an amazing thing. It highlights Ngozi's habit of really thunking you over the head with the theme, which evidently I needed in this particular case. And then lastly, these panels, these sort of pictures of Jack and Biddy in front of the yellow background were to me really, really, really exciting. And I remember them being the first maybe panel that really got traction in the nascent you know, check please fandom that was just beginning to grow. I remember people getting really excited about these panels in a way that I don't think had happened before. And I think actually in this case, the thunk over the head of these jokey extra blog post panels helped in that and helped, as you mentioned, in the way that in a fanfic there might be, you know, Jack slash Biddy or whatever in the tags. These panels did the same work of highlighting what the mile marker was and that we were going to get there, you know? And I think that that was like really, really smart marketing. And this was also right around the time, uh, even in the blog post, Ngozi says, hello, new followers. You know, there's a bunch of new followers and there's also a link to the Twitter. So I think this is around the time that Check Please is starting to become an internet phenomenon that will eventually be a really big deal. But I just wanted to highlight this as a moment in the comic where, you know, 20, how many strips are we in now? 23 strips in, we're starting to see real movement and excitement on Tumblr for these characters and this fandom in a way that hadn't quite been true before. I don't know. What did you think of this dumb little blog comic? I don't know. At this point, I can't be excited and pleased about Jack and Biddy getting together. I think it's cute that Jack's jersey in the, in the top panel says school. I think that's funny. It's not meant to be taken seriously, so I'm not going to, like, deconstruct it too much. But it's also basically, like, what is keeping these characters from getting together? In some ways, it's a lot more complicated than the fact that they're wearing hockey masks. But in some ways, it's basically just because there's an author controlling when they get together. Lastly... There was a very exciting FFA thread, which I will not entirely discuss here. I was not that active in it, by which I mean I wasn't active in it at all, like a fool. But I read it afterwards. And there was a really interesting proposal, not a serious proposal exactly, I think, in one of the posts, which suggested that you shouldn't read Check, Please too carefully because it's a soap opera. And although I don't think that that's a very good argument, I do think the proposal that Check, Please might be a soap opera or there's something in Check, Please that's readable in the genre of soap opera was pretty fun and interesting. So we don't have to get that deep into it. But my question is, is Check, Please a soap opera? No. Ah, all right. Well, fair enough. I think there's something kind of interesting there. As we all know, I'm obsessed with genre. I'm sorry I'm like this. I wish I weren't. I think there's something in reading Check, Please as a soap opera in the sense of its stakes. Like the stakes of Check, Please always seem to be relatively potentially disastrous. But unlike a soap opera, it never goes wrong. No one's evil twin ever comes back from the dead and kidnaps their baby. A house does not fall and kill on anybody. 
nothing ridiculous happens. And even in a sort of, you know, prestige soap opera style, if we're looking at, I don't know, Grey's Anatomy or something, I don't watch that show. But, you know, that was a soap opera style show with a big budget. So the ridiculous things that happened were slightly less ridiculous. The thing that a soap opera, I think, really does is string you along in suspense trying to figure out what's going to happen next. And I don't think the pacing on Check Please is suspenseful enough to really operate in that genre. So that's an answer to a question no one asked. You're welcome. Uh, the term is serialization. Soap operas are serialized. They are meant to run forever. Like Doonesbury, where the reason why there are so many crazy-ass nonsensical plot twists is because the longer a soap opera is on for, the more work it needs to do and the more fanciful it needs to get basically telling stories and finding reasons for the characters to participate in those stories. That is very specifically not what Check, Please! is. Check, Please! is a self-contained story with a single through-line plot that begins in a very specific place and ends in a very specific place. And even though it's not well done, there is a very specific, very pointed cause and effect narrative linear progression from strip A to last strip, strip Z. That's not what a soap opera is. The point that the person in this FFA Fred was raising was that, I guess I'm de-anoning, I had written a comment in this thread basically outlining some of the reasons that people are consistently frustrated with Ngozi and Check, Please. I was writing it not to say these were the things that I was frustrated with, although some of them are some of them also aren't. I was more trying to give a objective summary of what I, over my four years in the fandom, had observed as issues that OMGCP critical discussion raises. And one of the points that comes up over and over again is that the comic has a lot of really dark, angsty, serious elements in it. Suicide, drug addiction, homophobia, and the rest. However, it continually buries those issues in order to focus on fluffy and feel-good elements, only to trot them out again superficially to raise the stakes in isolated incidents. And sometimes the counter-criticism is that, oh, it's just a fun comic. Why are you dwelling on all of this dark, angsty fic? A commenter who I don't think is in the Check, Please fandom, or at least isn't like super familiar with Check, Please, came back and said, oh, well, based on the list of angsty themes that are in the comic, it sounds like it's a soap opera. And a lot of people don't understand soap operas. I have been in threads on FFA about the soap opera Emmerdale, and a lot of people in those threads are angry because they don't understand what soap operas are. Ergo, Check, Please is probably a soap opera, and that's also why people are angry. I would love to read a really interesting essay arguing that Check, Please is a soap opera. I don't think I would agree with it or accept that argument, but I think it could be a really interesting piece of writing. I don't think anyone should waste their time doing it because I don't think it's true. It's not a soap opera. Soap operas are very specifically 
open-ended, ongoing serial entertainment. The reason why they use wacky plot devices is because they've been on so long that they need to continually introduce further from reality elements to perpetuate the story. And when I say soap operas are on for a long time, like, I don't know, Grey's Anatomy has been on for what, like over a dozen years at this point? I have maybe watched collectively like 20 minutes of that show because it happened to be on in the background somewhere. But the traditional soap operas, you know, All My Children and General Hospital, these are things that are on for like decades. And they have the same characters on them for decades and the reason why Erica Kane gets married like a dozen times or however fucking many times she gets married is because Susan Lucci is on All My Children for like decades and there's only so many plots that you can bring into the show and one of them is like people getting married. Chef Please, believe it or not, only has one couple getting married. Hey, Ollie and Wix, at least two. Oh, yeah. Well, that's not in the that's not in the comic. P.S. No, I've never like in adulthood watched all my children, but uh, my mother, and my grandmother used to watch it, so it's something that would be on in the background when I was a kid. I couldn't tell you any more than Erica Kane is the main character, and she was played by Susan Lucci. That's basically. I think one. I think her daughter was a lesbian, but that's something I know from like different contexts. One thing I will say is that the current issue of The New Yorker, or at least the current issue that I have where I'm getting it on a delay because I live on another continent, has an article about uh, a couple of interesting new books about skin and something that comes up in one of these two books about skin is that soap operas are called soap operas because they were invented and produced and sponsored by soap companies to sell soap. And in fact, I think it's like Procter and Gamble. I forget, it, it might have been As the World Turns or maybe it was Days of Our Lives, I don't remember. I don't know what either of those two shows even are. But one of those two, Procter and Gamble owned up until it like ceased production in 2009. Does it matter? Who cares? Does Procter and Gamble own Sheck, please? I think that could be a lucrative deal for Ms. Ukazu. I have watched soap operas and I like soap operas sometimes in certain circumstances. I did watch Emmerdale for a number of years, which makes me interested in the way that that poster brought up Emmerdale. I had forgotten that's exactly what they said, so thank you for correcting me about the context of their comment. I've never seen it, by the way. I have no idea what it is. I just know that it sounds British, and there would be threads about it on FFA that I wouldn't expand. It is British. The reason that I watched it like circa 2011, I want to say, is because there was a gay character and people would cut the scenes of this character and there were very long YouTube playlists of just the scenes with this character, which I watched extremely excitedly and then would watch other like full episodes if I could get my hands on them. But that was a bit harder because it's a British show and I was not in Britain. But what I will say about Emmerdale just briefly, is that it has been on since 1972. It has had its own fair share of dramatic storylines, but actually its dramatic storylines tend not to be as completely insane as like As the World Turns or something. There don't tend to be, you know, evil twins. It's, it's not really that kind of soap opera. 
at least not in the, in the past 10 or 15 years, as I've sort of occasionally glanced over at it. Um, I'm not a regular watcher. But I think that it does do something that Check, Please does, which is have a series of self-contained storylines that do lead logically to the next storyline. The difference, of course, is that it's a soap opera with multiple main characters so that those storylines overlap in kind of interesting ways and don't begin and end all at the same time the way that Biddy's storylines all begin and end at the same time. But I actually think that there is something similar in the rhythm of storytelling in a soap opera like Emmerdale compared to Check, Please. The difference, of course, is that there are multiple main characters that the points of view change and that the same things could be seen from multiple points of view, whereas obviously in Check, Please, our main point of view is Biddy and that doesn't really switch around too much. While Emmerdale has room for negative consequences for literally all of its characters at truly any time, Check, Please never really explores the negative consequences of any of its main characters' actions. And therefore, even though there are rhythms in common, I just don't think that, even though I think you could say, yes, the serialization of Check, Please feels in some way like the serialization in a show like Emmerdale, Biddy and Jack are not going to get divorced because of some weird plot line where, like, that character has to go to jail and loses track of his foster daughter. I think that's something happening in Emmerdale within the past couple of years with the gay character who I did, you know, who I do a fondness for, so occasionally check up on. I'm not fully sure what's going on there, but I know that jail was involved and so was a divorce. So anyway, Jack and Biddy are not going to have that problem. And so, you know, if Check, Please is a soap opera, it's not a very good one. I would also read that essay, by the way, but I also don't think it would be a good use of your time. But if you want to, anybody, go ahead. Well, I have opened up the Wikipedia page for Erica Kane, and according to this page, her occupation is businesswoman, television personality, disco owner, model, author. And all I have to say is, so too with Alicia Zimmerman, I'm sure. Oh my god. <laughs> Alicia Zimmerman, disco owner, like discotheque owner. I want that. Yeah, uh, also her residence is listed as Seasons East Casino, Suite 1223. <laughs> Erica K living the good life, my god. My mother and my grandmother would watch all my children not together, just it would be like on in the house. And there was this very distinctive theme song and I would like come into the room and like listen to the theme song and then leave again. My family never watched soap operas in that way, but every woman in my, the side of my family that I was like really in contact with loved Law & Order SVU. So that brought us together, you know, scenes of violent horrors. And really, isn't that what every family needs? Anyway, scenes of violent horrors and check, please. Well, wouldn't that be a trip? Uh, we will get there next time a little bit with one of the worst things that happens in the entire strip. So what are we looking forward to next time? Next time, we will be watching... Well, wait, stop. <laughs> next time on Check This Please, comic number 1.20, Playoffs, Part 3. That's right, more playoffs. They're still happening. I have been Secret OMG, and I have seen one episode of Law & Order SVU, and anyway, I've been Secret OMG, who knows some things, doesn't know some other things. Come in and check with me. Wait, oh my god, I'm sorry. I need to start over. This whole thing has been a disaster. <laughs> I've been Secret OMG, 
come check in with me at Camillier on Tumblr, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, or Secret OMG, S-K-R-T OMG on Tumblr if you want some more general sort of fandom-ish meta and South Park stuff. I'm also on AO3 as familiar, and I've got some new fic on there. So run, don't walk. And I'm Tomato. You can find me on Tumblr at tomatorights.tumblr.com and on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. I would like to take a second and say that this new fic is everything that I've wanted for so long, ever since the idea of Jack Zimmerman trying to get an MFA in art occurred to me, and uh, you should read it. Goodbye. Okay, well, goodbye. <laughs> that was so sad.